Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. Today, do you want to talk about terms? Terms? Terms, and uh, when they can be a little bit fuzzy. I feel like you're really uh, kind of mining for some little <laughs> nugget of an introduction here. And yeah, I'm, not, I'm not particularly impressed with, with Hey, let, let's talk so about far. data mining. How about that? <laughs> that sounds good. All right, cool. You are listening to Linear Digressions. Oh, I Bef- saved that intro, didn't I? You really did. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was struggling there. Um, actually, before we dive into this, is that this is this is um, a topic that a listener suggested, and that actually just got me thinking. One thing I'd like to do is, if you were listening to this podcast and you left us a review on iTunes, high five! You are awesome. If you haven't. Whether you like us or you hate us, go leave a review on iTunes. Um, it made me so happy. I, I was just looking at the reviews uh, a couple days ago. I think we have 32 reviews or something. Nice. Cool. Yeah. 32 people love us or hate us. It's awesome. Woo. So be one of those people. Uh, listener suggestion. Uh, you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So this is coming in from uh, a listener named Rachel. And she was asking about data mining. Um, So it sounds like she is a little bit maybe newer to this field than some people who've been around for a long time. Um, Well, why why do you say that? I mean, I don't see any problem with the term data mining. Oh, yeah. So data mining, I think the reason I say that is because data mining, A, is a little bit of an older term for some of the stuff that happens in data science. Um, And the thing that she was asking about and pointed out rightly, I think, is that Data mining has a little bit of a pejorative sense sometimes uh, as it's used mm. today. It's seen as like not really good data science to be doing data mining. And so she's asking, I think, a really good question, which is like, first of all, can we just talk about this a little bit, what it is, um, which is really hard to do because it's one of those fuzzy terms and everybody means something a little bit different. But uh, yeah. But then also to you know unpack why sometimes people say it like it's a bad thing. Yeah, so, so what exactly is it? I mean, from the term, it kind of sounds like uh, a, kind of an exploratory thing. You've got a bunch of data. So you've got a bunch of data, and you don't, I guess you don't necessarily know what you're looking for. And so you kind of rummage around a little bit and, and dig through it and look for patterns. That's what comes to my mind and what the term kind of implies to me. Yeah, that's what I think of too. And especially because of mining, the idea that you have this big pile of dirt and then there might be a few really interesting little uh-huh. nuggets that you can find if you hit it right. in just the right way. And one of the big problems that can happen with this is if you try enough things on a big data set, you're going to find interesting relationships. And it's not because there's necessarily relationships there. It's just because you can get fluctuations in the data that happen to look like, you know, they might be predictive of something interesting, but they're but they're really not. Right. We talk so much about different methods for ensuring that what you think you're looking at is actually what you're looking at, making sure that the signal is not necessarily noise and ways of checking data. And if you're just rummaging around in a data set and looking for patterns, by definition, you're not doing that because you're not looking for anything in particular. You're just looking for patterns and you're looking to infer things from those patterns, which may not be there. Yeah, you can end up fooling yourself really easily. And so I think there was a lot of, well, still is a lot of bad data science that happens when you just kind of let yourself loose on a data set looking for 
interesting patterns as opposed to sort of having a more structured hypothesis or an idea of what it is you're looking for and what it is you're expecting to find. That's sort of a better way of uh, not accidentally fooling yourself into thinking that you found something when, uh, you know, you've gone fishing and you think you've got a big fish and you've just pulled up a boot. <laughs> right, yeah. Which I think is the metaphor that we used the last time we talked about this. So I'm apparently a one-trick pony when it comes to metaphors about data mining. Um, but another thing that I was reading about when I was reading up on data mining this weekend that uh, I think is even maybe a little bit more interesting is the topic of how within data mining, generally within certain kinds of data analysis, you can sometimes have this problem uh, they call it sometimes data leakage, which I think sounds really gross. So we'll call it yeah, data contamination, <laughs> uh, which doesn't right. sound that great either. But no, it's no, just a it's, little it's less better than leakage. Cringe inducing. I agree. But here's here's the rough idea: is that a lot of times you're in a situation where you want to do a supervised learning problem. So you have uh, one feature in your data, a column, and it's sort of this target or like this this truth quantity that you want to be able to predict given all these other features that you have in the data. And in a, in a you know, perfect world, there's some relationship between all of your predicting features and your outcome variable. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, you know, what are you doing? You're not going to be able to find anything. So there has to be some relationship, but sometimes there can be, uh, like I said, kind of contamination where your labels can actually sneak into the features themselves. So an extreme example of this is imagine you have a machine learning algorithm that just has the um, the target outcome as one of the features that you have available to you when you learn. Well, then your algorithm is definitely going to pick up on that and it's just going to say, oh, hey, there's this one column that's like perfect. So we're just going to do that. You're just going to use the column that has the answers. Yeah. It's kind of like if you have an answer cheat sheet along with a test. I mean, are the students going to look at the test? No, they're just going to look at the cheat sheet. Exactly. And this can be a really easy mistake to make. I've made it. Uh, and you have to have a, a healthy skepticism of models that look like they're doing a little bit too well uh, in order to mm. find it when this happens. So there's no shame in doing it. The only shame is in uh, not being properly skeptical of your models when they, they come back and they say something like, I have 100% accuracy. Um, oh, yes. And I mean, you luck. know, that, that could be applied to life as well. A healthy dose of skepticism is always good. I think I think skepticism is uh, one of the most valuable skills that one mm -hmm. can have as any kind of scientist. I mean, actually, just to go on a brief digression here, skepticism is effectively critical thought, right? Critical thinking paired with an inherent mis—not mistrust, but not taking everything necessarily at face value, thinking about those things critically— and actually, when people are talking about things like learning programming, I mean, that's near and dear to both of our hearts because we used to work at Udacity and, and Udacity teaches programming and other such things. Mm -hmm. You need that critical thinking. And oftentimes people kind of, they'll learn a programming language, but really what they should be learning is the critical thinking around it, like the, the ways to... Uh, attack a problem, an algorithmic problem, or something like that. That's really what you want to, what you want to focus on and learn. Not so much the syntax of a particular language or something. Is that too digressiony? Pretty digressiony. Yeah, that's okay. No, I I think it's it's a good point, um, and it's something that we very often get very you know 
we do this on the show. Everybody does this. We get pretty enthusiastic about stuff. And in general, we try to find things to talk about that we think are, you know, of high quality and that are kind of have been Mm -hmm. tried and, and tested and have been found to be pretty robust. But yeah, in general, you should be you should be thinking critically about all the things that you read. Like this came up uh, just in the last episode or two episodes ago where we were talking about that one guy and he did the, the study of talking with people about transgender issues. And when you unpack it a little bit, you're like, Oh, well I don't like, okay, it's a a good study. He didn't do anything wrong, but I also don't know if we should get overly excited about this because we might be just, you know, detecting something like that he was managing to find people who were more open-minded rather than really managing to change people's minds. And so just thinking about it uh, critically and trying to make your own evaluation of um, what's actually going on here. But anyway, um, yeah. So I was reading a lot about then this contamination that you can get sometimes from, from your variable of interest into like the training features that you have available to you. And this has happened a lot more than I had realized. Um, sometimes with very high profile like competitions and things like that. So as you may know, there's a number of different kinds of data science and data mining competitions that are hosted uh, on sites like Kaggle and Driven Data. And then also there are companies sometimes that will sponsor big competitions every year. And there have been a number of these where the data hasn't really been properly sanitized, so to speak, and you actually get kind of bleed through from the the target uh, variable into the data set. So one very interesting case of this was in 2008. There was a competition called the KDD Cup, and what they were trying to do was they had a bunch of features that were relating to breast cancer patients, and then the outcome that you were supposed to be predicting was whether this person had some type of breast cancer or not. Yeah, right. And so you can imagine that you have a big table and it has sort of this index column that has a a patient ID number in it, then a a bunch of attributes about the patient and then um, whether they have breast cancer or not. And as it turned out, there was actually, there was a relationship between the data collecting process and whether people had breast cancer. Oh, And the data collecting process was reflected in the ID numbers as they were assigned. Whoa. So, so the algorithm didn't necessarily have an answer key of does this person have breast cancer versus this person not have breast cancer, but encoded in the patient ID, that information existed. Yeah. So maybe the, the I mean, I, I don't know how they did that, but maybe they said like, patients with breast cancer get this particular ID range or something. Yeah, well, so what happened was it was a an agglomeration of data from several different sources, and mm-hmm. some of the sources had much higher likelihood of having people who actually had breast cancer being referred oh, to wow. them because they're, you know, maybe like a, in uh, a different place that uh, this is the, the hospital that you get sent to if you already are exhibiting strong signs of breast cancer, whereas other uh, doctor's offices are just getting some, you know, a, a group of people that are not as enriched in people who have cancer. And so then the people who go to those hospitals then get assigned certain IDs. And then all of the IDs that are associated with that hospital, they have a certain pattern in them or they're, you know, sort of concurrent one after the other in the table. And mm-hmm. then the algorithm is able to figure out based on the ID whether someone has cancer or not, which of course is like not going to be anything that's going to help you if you're trying to figure out for a new patient if they right. have cancer. That doesn't generalize yeah. very well. But people <laughs> yeah, were what, very what's surprised. Your ID number? 
Wow. That's, that's insidious. That's really tricky because you, you can't like, there's so many potential blind spots like that. Yeah. And there, they might be obvious once you hear about them or once you discover them, but before you discover them, they're blind spots. You don't know that they exist. And so I guess that's where that healthy dose of skepticism comes in. Yeah. So for a case like that, uh, the thing that you should always do if you have a, a model that seems to be performing very well, you should always do this in general, is a lot of packages will support some way of understanding which are the most important features uh, mm, that your algorithm right. has identified. And so in a case like that, if you see that the patient ID is coming back as one of your most important features, that's a huge hint that something <laughs> weird is going problem. on. Right. And then there's another kind of uh, of contamination that can happen a lot, and I think this is also worth thinking about. Uh, which is a lot of times there's data that's time series data, which we haven't talked about time series problems so much, but it's basically uh, data that's coming in. You can imagine sort of a streaming uh, format of data where every time interval you get a new data point. So examples of this would be things like audio data, stock price data. Mm -hmm. um, That's all I can think of right now for some reason. Um, But the idea is based on what I've seen so far, predict something about what's going to happen in the future. And so there was an, a, an example of this. This was in 2010. There was a competition called Informs, and it was a kind of a standard stock price prediction competition. And the thing that can be really nasty about this is that with time series data, you have to be really careful to not look into the future, which sounds uh, like duh, but yeah. it can be really hard uh, to tell there can be uh, sort of complicated little ways that you can accidentally build yourself a little time machine uh, where you can accidentally see into the future in ways so, that you don't anticipate. So you're talking about uh, you're talking about taking trying to take a data set and only look at, let's say, the first half of your data over this period of time and then trying to make a, a algorithm that is predictive, that can kind of predict the future but you need to have that algorithm only look at the data from the past, not the data it's trying to predict either directly or indirectly. Yeah, that's right. So let's say that you have stock prices for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then the problem is, given this information, predict for me what the the stock price is going to be at the end of the day on Friday. Oh, you know what? Mm. Can I make a guess? Hmm. Um, Because you've phrased it this way, Every Monday has information potentially about the pre- uh, the previous Friday. Uh, is that uh, so? The thing that I was actually thinking about is sometimes you have it's even more basic than that. It's like sometimes you have week level W E E K week level uh, uh, attributes that you calculate. Okay. And so then, if you have those uh, attributes that contain information for the entire week, but you're mm. nominally only supposed to know about the first four days of the week, then that can be a source of contamination oh, into your target feature. So in particular, in this stock price prediction thing that had this um, you know, contamination problem, there were a couple of things that were going on. Number one is that the stocks were de-identified, but they did have some information about, say, the sector that they belonged to. And so then what you could get is you could get future type information about other stocks that were in the same sector as your target stock. So let's say that you have a stock and you don't know what what oil company it is, but you know it's an oil company. 
and you're trying to predict what it's going to do on Friday based on Monday through Thursday. But you also happen to have a bunch of other oil stocks that you have the full week's information for. And you know that there was, let's say, some economic report that came out first thing on Friday morning. And mm-hmm. so based on what else is going in, going on in that group of oil stocks, you can make a prediction that is a little bit peeking into the future that the, um, that the price of the stock that you're interested in is going to go down because of all these, these other stocks that sort of all move together that are telling right. you that it's going down. So there's kind of a hidden correlation. And mm-hmm. I guess in this case, the correlation seems fairly obvious, but still could be easy to miss. And I'm sure in other cases, there could be correlations that are much, much more difficult to, um, to imagine. Right. And then another thing that, that they raise here is that sometimes with these competitions, it's a little bit of a, there was a little bit of a fuzzy line between whether just only the competition data was allowed or whether there was also the option for competitors to find outside data sources and join them in as well. And you can kind of understand both sides of that. On the one hand, only having everyone using the same data set kind of keeps the playing field level in a, in a way. And it also avoids any problems of like, let's say in this case, like a stock being re-identified that you could figure out actually for an unlabeled stock, which stock it was. And then you can just go look it up and see what the price was at the mm-hmm. end of the day on Friday. Um, but a lot of times the companies that are sponsoring these competitions, the reason that they're sponsoring them is because they want to see what a whole group of people do with this problem when they are sort of doing it for the first time. They're looking for new ideas, basically, and for new sources of insight. And sometimes finding new data sets is going to give you some new insights, and they're insights that are that are legitimate. And so right. uh, one of the things that this paper proposes as a way of avoiding uh, you know, the worst of these problems, especially in the competitions, is these competitions, you just have two, two tracks, one of which is you're only allowed to use uh, the data that's provided for you as kind of like the starter data, and then maybe a second track where you're allowed to join in other data from outside sources. And then that way, it's very clear if you see much better performance with the outside data, uh, that, that that might be what's actually responsible for it. And people can just be a little bit more thoughtful about what that new mm, data might yeah. be bringing to the table. And then the other thing that I thought that they had that was fairly interesting as a way to avoid this as a big problem is don't try to take a data set where you know the answers and then artificially try to remove those answers because even if you think you've done a good job, it can very often be that you haven't totally removed them or you've you've removed them where you thought they were, but then they've kind of migrated to somewhere else where they're even harder to find. <laughs> and so what do you mean by this is instead of taking, let's say, the stock's f- prices from last week uh, – and say, based on Monday through Thursday, tell me about Friday, and I'm just going to ask you to kind of close your eyes and pretend you don't know anything about Friday, run a competition where we're actually today trying to predict the stock prices for tomorrow, and truly yeah. no one actually knows. Yeah. And that's a much more honest uh, metric, which I think was a really good point, is that uh, at the end of the day, it's these algorithms are interesting because they give you some insights into what actually can happen in the future. So just set it up so that you're... <laughs> you're dealing with cases that actually happen in the future. So um, so that was how I spent my Saturday, was reading about uh, data. <laughs> we managed to avoid a whole episode without saying the term leakage. So data leakage, oh, yeah, that's, I'll say it. <laughs> well done, well done. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's a really interesting topic, and there's all kinds of uh, additional like good little case studies that you can find out there 
on this. Um, and the one other thing I'll say is that Claudia Perlick is, is one of the data scientists who I think talks about this a lot. Uh, and she has some really, the, the paper that I was reading was one that she and a couple of a couple of collaborators wrote. It's called Leakage in Data Mining, Formulation, Detection, and Avoidance. Um, and so in general, this is something that you find interesting. Um, she has all kinds of interesting things to say about it. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.